Section 3 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Section 3, First Book, The World as Idea First Aspect, the idea subordinated to the principle of sufficient reason, the object of experience and science. Sors de l'Efance, Ami Revetoi, Jean-Jacques Rousseau Section 1, The World is My Idea this is a truth which holds good for everything that lives and knows though man alone can bring it into reflective and abstract consciousness if he really does this he has attained to philosophical wisdom it then becomes clear and certain to him that what he knows is not a sun and an earth but only an eye that sees a sun a hand that feels an earth that the world which surrounds him is there only as idea that is only in relation to something else the consciousness which is himself if any truth can be asserted a priori it is this for it is the expression of the most general form of all possible and thinkable experience a form which is more general than time or space or causality for they all presuppose it and each of these which we have seen to be just so many modes of the principle of sufficient reason is valid only for a particular class of ideas whereas the antithesis of object and subject is the common form of all these classes is that form under which alone any idea of whatever kind it may be abstract or intuitive pure or empirical is possible and thinkable no truth therefore is more certain more independent of all others and less in need of proof than this that all that exists for knowledge and therefore this whole world is only object in relation to subject perception of a perceiver in a word idea this is obviously true of the past and the future as well as of the present of what is farthest off as of what is near for it is true of time and space themselves in which alone these distinctions arise all that in any way belongs or can belong to the world is inevitably thus conditioned through the subject and exists only for the subject the world is idea this truth is by no means new it was implicitly involved in the skeptical reflections from which descartes started berkeley however was the first who distinctly enunciated it and by this he has rendered a permanent service to philosophy even though the rest of his teaching should not endure kant's primary mistake was the neglect of this principle as is shown in the appendix how early again this truth was recognized by the wise men of india appearing indeed as the fundamental tenet of the vedanta philosophy ascribed to vyasa is pointed out by sir william jones in the last of his essays on the philosophy of the asiatics asiatic researches volume four page one sixty four where he says the fundamental tenet of the vedanta school consisted not in denying the existence of matter 
that is, of solidity, impenetrability, and extended figure, to deny which would be lunacy, but in correcting the popular notion of it, and in contending that it has no essence independent of mental perception, that existence and perceptibility are convertible terms. These words adequately express the compatibility of empirical reality and transcendental ideality. In this first book, then, we consider the world only from this side, only so far as it is idea. The inward reluctance with which any one accepts the world as merely his idea warns him that this view of it, however true it may be, is nevertheless one-sided, adopted in consequence of some arbitrary abstraction. And yet it is a conception from which he can never free himself. The defectiveness of this view will be corrected in the next book by means of a truth which is not so immediately certain as that from which we start here, a truth at which we can arrive only by deeper research and more severe abstraction, by the separation of what is different and the union of what is identical. This truth, which must be very serious and impressive, if not awful to every one, is that a man can also say, and must say, the world is my will. In this book, however, we must consider separately that aspect of the world from which we start, its aspect as knowable, and therefore, in the meantime, we must without reserve regard all presented objects, even our own bodies, as we shall presently show more fully, merely as ideas, and call them merely ideas. By so doing, we always abstract from will, as we hope to make clear to every one further on, which by itself constitutes the other aspect of the world. For as the world is in one aspect entirely idea, so in another it is entirely will. A reality which is neither of these two, but an object in itself, into which the thing in itself has unfortunately dwindled in the hands of Kant, is the phantom of a dream and its acceptance is an ignis fatuous in philosophy section two that which knows all things and is known by none is the subject thus it is the supporter of the world that condition of all phenomena of all objects which is always presupposed throughout experience for all that exists exists only for the subject every one finds himself to be subject yet only in so far as he knows, not in so far as he is an object of knowledge. But his body is object, and therefore from this point of view we call it idea. For the body is an object among objects, and is conditioned by the laws of objects, although it is an immediate object. Like all objects of perception, it lies within the universal forms of knowledge, time, and space, which are the conditions of multiplicity. The subject, on the contrary, which is always the knower, never the known, does not come under these forms, but is presupposed by them. It has therefore neither multiplicity nor its opposite unity. We never know it, but it is always the knower wherever there is knowledge. So then the world as idea, the only aspect in which we consider it at present, has two fundamental necessary and inseparable halves the one half is the object 
the forms of which are space and time, and through these multiplicity. The other half is the subject which is not in space and time, for it is present, entire and undivided, in every percipient being. So that any one percipient being, with the object, constitutes the whole world as idea just as fully as the existing millions could do. But if this one were to disappear, then the whole world as idea would cease to be. These halves are therefore inseparable even for thought, for each of the two has meaning and existence only through and for the other. Each appears with the other and vanishes with it. They limit each other immediately. Where the object begins, the subject ends. The universality of this limitation is shown by the fact that the essential and hence universal forms of all objects, space, time, and causality may, without knowledge of the object, be discovered and fully known from a consideration of the subject, that is, in Kantian language, they lie a priori in our consciousness. That he discovered this is one of Kant's principal merits, and it is a great one. I, however, go beyond this, and maintain that the principle of sufficient reason is the general expression for all these forms of the object of which we are a priori conscious, and that therefore all that we know purely a priori is merely the content of that principle, and what follows from it. In it all our certain a priori knowledge is expressed. In my essay on the principle of sufficient reason, I have shown in detail how every possible object comes under it, that is, stands in a necessary relation to other objects, on the one side as determined, on the other side as determining. This is of such wide application that the whole existence of all objects, so far as they are objects, ideas, and nothing more, may be entirely traced to this their necessary relation to each other, rests only in it, is in fact merely relative, but of this more presently. I have further shown that the necessary relation which the principle of sufficient reason expresses generally appears in other forms corresponding to the classes into which objects are divided according to their possibility and again that by these forms the proper division of the classes is tested i take it for granted that what i said in this earlier essay is known and present to the reader for if it had not been already said it would necessarily find its place here section three the chief distinction among our ideas is that between ideas of perception and abstract ideas the latter form just one class of ideas, namely concepts, and these are the possession of man alone of all creatures upon earth. The capacity for these, which distinguishes him from all the lower animals, has always been called reason. Footnote. Kant is the only writer who has confused this idea of reason, and in this connection I refer the reader to the appendix, and also to my Grundproblem der Ethik. Uber de Grundlage de Morale section six pages one forty eight through one fifty four first and second editions End footnote. we shall consider these abstract ideas by themselves later but in the first place we shall speak exclusively of the ideas of perception 
these comprehend the whole visible world or the sum total of experience with the conditions of its possibility we have already observed that it is a highly important discovery of kant's that these very conditions these forms of the visible world that is the absolutely universal element in its perception the common property of all its phenomena space and time even when taken by themselves and apart from their content can not only be thought in the abstract but also be directly perceived and that this perception or intuition is not some kind of phantasm arising from constant recurrence in experience but is so entirely independent of experience that we must rather regard the latter as dependent on it inasmuch as the qualities of space and time as they are known in a priori perception or intuition are valid for all possible experience as rules to which it must invariably conform accordingly in my essay on the principle of sufficient reason i have treated space and time because they are perceived as pure and empty of content as a special and independent class of ideas this quality of the universal forms of intuition which was discovered by kant that they may be perceived in themselves and apart from experience and that they may be known as exhibiting those laws on which is founded the infallible science of mathematics is certainly very important not less worthy of remark however is this other quality of time and space that the principle of sufficient reason which conditions experience as the law of causation and of motive and thought as the law of the basis of judgment appears here in quite a special form to which i have given the name of the ground of being in time this is the succession of its moments and in space the position of its parts which reciprocally determine each other ad infinitum any one who has fully understood from the introductory essay the complete identity of the content of the principle of sufficient reason in all its different forms must also be convinced of the importance of the knowledge of the simplest of these forms as affording him insight into his own inmost nature this simplest form of the principle we have found to be time in it each instant is only in so far as it has effaced the preceding one its generator to be itself in turn is quickly effaced the past and the future considered apart from the consequences of their content are empty as a dream and the present is only the indivisible and unenduring boundary between them and in all the other forms of the principle of sufficient reason we shall find the same emptiness and shall see that not time only but also space and the whole content of both of them that is all that proceeds from causes and motives has a merely relative existence is only through and for another like to itself that is not more enduring the substance of this doctrine is old it appears in heraclitus when he laments the eternal flux of things in plato when he degrades the object to that which is ever becoming but never being in spinoza as the doctrine of the mere accidents of the one substance which is and endures kant opposes what is thus known as the mere phenomenon to the thing in itself 
lastly the ancient wisdom of the indian philosophers declares it is maya the veil of deception which blinds the eyes of mortals and makes them behold a world of which they cannot say either that it is or that it is not for it is like a dream it is like the sunshine on the sand which the traveller takes from afar for water or the stray piece of rope he mistakes for a snake these similes are repeated in innumerable passages of the vedas and the puranas but what all these mean and that of which they all speak is nothing more than what we have just considered the world as idea subject to the principle of sufficient reason section four whoever has recognized the form of the principle of sufficient reason which appears in pure time as such and on which all counting and arithmetical calculation rests has completely mastered the nature of time time is nothing more than that form of the principle of sufficient reason and has no further significance succession is the form of the principle of sufficient reason in time and succession is the whole nature of time further whoever has recognized the principle of sufficient reason as it appears in the presentation of pure space has exhausted the whole nature of space which is absolutely nothing more than that possibility of the reciprocal determination of its parts by each other which is called position the detailed treatment of this and the formulation and abstract conceptions of the results which flow from it so that they may be more conveniently used is the subject of the science of geometry thus also whoever has recognized the law of causation the aspect of the principle of sufficient reasons which appears in what fills these forms space and time as objects of perception that is to say matter has completely mastered the nature of matter as such for matter is nothing more than causation as any one will see at once if he reflects its true being is its action nor can we possibly conceive it as having any other meaning only as active does it fill space and time its action upon the immediate object which is itself matter determines that perception in which alone it exists the consequence of the action of any material object upon any other is known only in so far as the latter acts upon the immediate object in a different way from that in which it acted before it consists only of this cause and effect thus constitute the whole nature of matter its true being is its action a fuller treatment of this will be found in the essay on the principle of sufficient reason section twenty one page seventy seven the nature of all material things is therefore very appropriately called in german wirklichkeit footnote mira in quibustum rebus verborum proprietist est et consuetudo sermonis antiqui quadum efficacissimis notis signat seneca epistles eighty one end footnote a word which is far more expressive than realitate again that which is acted upon is always matter and thus the whole being and essence of matter consists in the orderly change which one part of it brings about in another part the existence of matter is therefore entirely relative 
according to a relation which is valid only within its limits, as in the case of time and space. But time and space, each for itself, can be mentally presented apart from matter, whereas matter cannot be so presented apart from time and space. The form which is inseparable from it presupposes space, and the action in which its very existence consists always imports some change, in other words, a determination in time. But space and time are not only, each for itself, presupposed by matter, but a union of the two constitutes its essence. For this, as we have seen, consists in action, that is, in causation. All the innumerable conceivable phenomena and conditions of things might be coexistent in boundless space, without limiting each other, or might be successive in endless time, without interfering with each other. Thus a necessary relation of these phenomena to each other, and a law which should regulate them according to such a relation, is by no means needful, would not indeed be applicable. It therefore follows that in the case of all coexistence in space and change in time, so long as each of these forms preserves for itself its condition and its course without any connection with the other, there can be no causation, and since causation constitutes the essential nature of matter, there can be no matter. But the law of causation receives its meaning and necessity only from this, that the essence of change does not consist simply in the mere variation of things, but rather in the fact that at the same part of space there is now one thing, and then another, and at one and the same point of time there is here one thing, and there another. Only this reciprocal limitation of space and time by each other gives meaning, and at the same time necessity to a law, according to which change must take place. What is determined by the law of causality is therefore not merely a succession of things in time, but this succession with reference to a definite space, and not merely existence of things in a particular place, but in this place at a different point of time. Change, that is, variation which takes place according to the law of causality, implies always a determined part of space and a determined part of time, together and in union. Thus causality unites space with time. But we found that the whole essence of matter consisted in action, that is, in causation. Consequently, space and time must also be united in matter. That is to say, matter must take to itself at once the distinguishing qualities both of space and time, however much these may be opposed to each other and must unite in itself what is impossible for each of these independently that is the fleeting course of time with the rigid unchangeable perduration of space infinite divisibility it receives from both it is for this reason that we find that coexistence which could neither be in time alone for time has no contiguity nor in space alone for space has no before after or now is first established through matter but the coexistence of many things constitutes in fact the essence of reality for through it permanence first becomes possible for permanence is only knowable in the change of something which is present along with what is permanent 
while on the other hand it is only because something permanent is present along with what changes that the latter gains the special character of change that is the mutation of quality and form in the permanence of substance that is to say in matter footnote it is shown in the appendix that matter and substance are one End footnote. if the world were in space alone it would be rigid and immovable without succession without change without action but we know that with action the idea of matter first appears again if the world were in time alone all would be fleeting without persistence without contiguity hence without coexistence and consequently without permanence so that in this case also there would be no matter only through the union of space and time do we reach matter and matter is the possibility of coexistence and through that of permanence through permanence again matter is the possibility of the persistence of substance in the change of its states footnote this shows the ground of the kantian explanation of matter that it is that which is movable in space for motion consists simply in the union of space and time End footnote. as matter consists in the union of space and time it bears throughout the stamp of both it manifests its origin in space partly through the form which is inseparable from it but especially through its persistence substance the a priori certainty of which is therefore wholly deducible from that of space footnote not as kant holds from the knowledge of time as will be explained in the appendix End footnote. for variation belongs to time alone but in it alone and for itself nothing is persistent matter shows that it springs from time by quality accidents without which it never exists and which is plainly always causality action upon other matter and therefore change a time concept the law of this action however always depends upon space and time together and only thus obtains meaning the regulative function of causality is confined entirely to the determination of what must occupy this time and this space the fact that we know a priori the unalterable characteristics of matter depends upon this derivation of its essential nature from the forms of our knowledge of which we are conscious a priori these unalterable characteristics are space occupation that is impenetrability that is causal action consequently extension infinite divisibility persistence that is indestructibility and lastly mobility weight on the other hand notwithstanding its universality must be attributed to a posteriori knowledge although kant in his metaphysical introduction to natural philosophy page seventy one page three seventy two of rosencrantz's edition treats it as knowable a priori but as the object in general is only for the subject as its idea so every special class of ideas is only for an equally special quality in the subject which is called a faculty of perception this subjective correlative of time and space in themselves as empty forms has been named by kant pure sensibility and we may retain this expression as kant was the first to treat of the subject though it is not exact 
for sensibility presupposes matter the subjective correlative of matter or of causation for these two are the same is understanding which is nothing more than this to know causality is its one function its only power and it is a great one embracing much of manifold application yet of unmistakable identity in all its manifestations conversely all causation that is to say all matter or the whole of reality is only for the understanding through the understanding and in the understanding the first simplest and ever-present example of understanding is the perception of the actual world this is throughout knowledge of the cause from the effect and therefore all perception is intellectual the understanding could never arrive at this perception however if some effect did not become known immediately and thus serve as a starting point but this is the affection of the animal body so far then the animal body is the immediate object of the subject the perception of all other objects becomes possible through it the changes which every animal body experiences are immediately known that is felt and as these effects are at once referred to their causes the perception of the latter as objects arises this relation is no conclusion in abstract conceptions it does not arise from reflection nor is it arbitrary but immediate necessary and certain it is the method of knowing of the pure understanding without which there could be no perception there would only remain a dull plant-like consciousness of the changes of the immediate object which would succeed each other in an utterly unmeaning way except in so far as they might have a meaning for the will either as pain or pleasure but as with the rising of the sun the visible world appears so at one stroke the understanding by means of its one simple function changes the dull meaningless sensation into perception what the eye the ear or the hand feels is not perception it is merely its data by the understanding passing from the effect to the cause the world first appears as perception extended in space varying in respect of form persistent through all time in respect of matter for the understanding unites space and time in the idea of matter that is causal action as the world as idea exists only through the understanding so also it exists only for the understanding in the first chapter of my essay on light and color i have already explained how the understanding constructs perceptions out of the data supplied by the senses how by comparison of the impressions which the various senses receive from the object a child arrives at perceptions how this alone affords the solution of so many phenomena of the senses the single vision of two eyes the double vision in the case of a squint or when we try to look at once at objects which lie in unequal distances behind each other and all illusion which is produced by a sudden alteration in the organs of sense but i have treated this important subject much more fully and thoroughly in the second edition of the essay on the principle of sufficient reason section twenty one all that is said there would find its proper place here and would therefore have to be said again but as i have almost as much disinclination to quote myself as to quote others 
and as i am unable to explain the subject better than it is explained there i refer the reader to it instead of quoting it and take for granted that it is known the process by which children and persons born blind who have been operated upon learn to see the single vision of the double sensation of two eyes the double vision and double touch which occur when the organs of sense have been displaced from their usual position the upright appearance of objects while the picture on the retina is upside down the attributing of color to the outward objects whereas it is merely an inner function a division through polarization of the activity of the eye and lastly the stereoscope all these are sure and incontrovertible evidence that perception is not merely of the senses but intellectual that is pure knowledge through the understanding of the cause from the effect and that consequently it presupposes the law of causality and a knowledge of which all perception that is to say all experience by virtue of its primary and only possibility depends the contrary doctrine that the law of causality results from experience which was the skepticism of hume is first refuted by this for the independence of the knowledge of causality of all experience that is its a priori character can only be deduced from the dependence of all experience upon it and this deduction can only be accomplished by proving in the manner here indicated and explained in the passages referred to above that the knowledge of causality is included in perception in general to which all experience belongs and therefore in respect of experience is completely a priori does not presuppose it but is presupposed by it as a condition this however cannot be deduced in the manner attempted by kant which i have criticized in the essay on the principle of sufficient reason section twenty three end of section three first book the world as idea first aspect sections one through four recording by pamela krantz